0: All right. Um, So we are uh, on the last session of, well, I say the last session of our study. We we may have to prolong it. I don't know. It's going to depend on what the question and response goes like at the tail end of this tonight. Um, So here's the strategy. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do a quick review of just reminding you of the things that we covered. That is all right there in the, your packet. If you got a packet when you came in, what you should find in it are some, uh, a first is a kind of a worksheet, a review, then some blanks that we're going to fill in along the way, going with the keynote behind me. I cut it a little bit shorter tonight, so hopefully I'm going to end this, my part, at sometime between 7 and 7.05. That gives us another 15, 20, even maybe close to 30 minutes of question and response. Sometimes those things can take a long time. No doubt you've had time to marinate on some of this and let it seep in and think through the ramifications of all of this. And so uh, I'm going to then turn it over to you to ask questions, and I'm going to do my best to respond, hopefully from the text, as much as possible. And, um, and, and then we'll, we'll go. And if we have more questions when it's over, then we'll extend that into next week's time. Isn't that good? Everybody good with that? All right. So just as a review, real quick, there's several points that we want to consider, things that basically tracing the line of thinking that we went through over the last many weeks. Um, And it says my connection is lost. We good? Okay. Um, First, we said we're condemned in Adam because we're Adam's children. And not only are we condemned because we're Adam's children, but then we also inherited a corrupt nature. So it's a twofold problem that we've got. One is from the moment of conception we've got a problem. We are born into Adam, and Paul reminds us in Adam all die. So you're in Adam, you're dead, right? That's just the nature of the way it is. Adam kind of corrupted the stream, as it were, and so we are all Adam's children, and therefore we're all guilty under Adam because that penalty of death was given to all who are guilty. So we've also, though, inherited a corrupt nature, so a- after that, we then, as kids, even little kids, know sin way better than righteousness. We have to be taught not to hit our brothers and sisters. We don't have to be taught to hit our brothers and sisters. That comes to us by nature. Um, so we have a kind of a twofold problem. Our salvation, when we talk about salvation, we really talk about it in three, uh, in a kind of a package of three, a trinity, as it were. First, our salvation, we have to say, is a past tense act, first and foremost. One, the Bible says that it was before the foundations of the world, but then in time, actually, Christ, the God man, absorbed God's wrath toward me 2,000 years before I was ever born. So my salvation that Christ purchased on the cross was completed. When he said, It is finished. And he says, first, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Then he says, it is finished. When you put those two statements together, it becomes pretty clear what he's talking about. The seeking and the saving, that which was lost, is completed on the cross. He's done it. He sought it and he saved. Well, my salvation then was purchased 2,000 years ago when Christ died for me and absorbed God's wrath toward me. So I have to say, salvation is a past tense act. At least part of it is. But then, uh, so, and we also spent a week dealing with Jesus actually coming to fulfill a unique role, a a role we could not fulfill. See, we're Adam's children, so we're guilty at the moment of conception. Jesus, however, is not born of Adam, right, in in the sense that we are. He's not from the lineage of Adam. He is God. He is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. So he accomplishes what Adam could never, and Adam's children could never, in that he lives perfectly. We could never have done that. That was required of us, and we could never meet that standard. Jesus meets it, all right? But then the only way he could meet that is if he is also truly and fully God. So he fulfills both obligations and, and is kind of a, is a unique person uh, for us. He fulfills that role and then basically says uh, for us to be a part of his kingdom, we must be born again, not just born of Adam, but actually born of the Spirit of God under Christ. Um, So that what we say then, what we said then the following week was that our new birth, what is required to enter into the kingdom of God, to be born again, our new birth is monergistic, meaning God works alone in our new birth. He changes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. That's what he promised he would do. I will take out your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. And Christ says, I'm coming to do that in my blood. So he's going to do that. And so the new birth that we experience is monergistic. He effectually calls his children. That calling is irresistible. And each week we went through a a pound of scriptures uh, to, to... um, look at all of those uh, evidences in Scripture that that's the case. But his effectual call is irresistible and it results in the sinner coming to faith. Alright, then we said conversion then takes place in the conscious life of the newly regenerated sinner. So God uh, get, grants to us new birth and then we experience what we call conversion which is where our conscious mind comes to realize our need for the gospel That we are sinners, that we need Christ, and we repent. And that came probably in a hundred different ways across this room. Uh, Even though there's not a hundred people in here, it probably came four or five times to some of us, right? But it it, it probably came a hundred different ways across this room, where maybe in one church there was some sort of invitation or something, and maybe in another it was a friend sharing the gospel with you, and, and maybe a different way to some others. But there was a point where your eyes opened to the gospel. And what we're we're saying that the Scriptures is very clear about is that there was a dynamic at work behind the scenes where God first gave you a new heart, and that opened your eyes to your need for the gospel. When you heard the gospel presented to you, you believed, right? Um, So the sinner, then, when he believes, he or she believes, is justified by God's grace through that gift of faith. And what we see over t- over the course of Scripture, that the gift of grace, of changing out your heart, get, replacing the heart of stone, and the gift of faith, you actually believing, are both gifts that God gives to people. They're both gifts of God. So the sinner is then justified and goes about this work of Striving towards holy living. And what we see also is that process we call sanctification takes place over the course of one's life. It looks like a, a, stock, a good stock, anyway, that over the course of many years trends upward, but at any moment may be like this. It may be even like this, or it may be like this. You know. But at any moment, it could be up or down, but over the course of time, it trends upward until finally we are in heaven and, and glorified. But that process of sanctification is a, is a lifelong process that the Spirit that He puts within us actually begins to work in us to do. Um, so they whom God has regenerated, who He has effectually called, will continue in God's sanctifying grace to the end until they're eternally saved. And that, in, in other words, God's not going to lose anybody. Those whom He has called truly to salvation they're, they're never going to finally move away from God altogether. Um, so following the death of the soul, we went through what death looks like. Following the death, uh, so following the death of the body, the believer's soul uh, is immediately entering into the presence of Christ to be uh, reunited with his resurrected body at Christ's return. So your soul goes to be with the Lord, your body rots in the grave, Christ will return one day and reunite body and soul. So, um, And then last time we talked about the sovereignty of God in grace gives us our only hope of success in evangelism. So we we talked about that um, difficulty that some have of going, well, if God is the one working all this salvation for people, then what is the point of evangelism? And the answer to that is, that is the only reason evangelism can be successful, is because... God is the one that works, and He works through the call of the gospel that we give to others. That's how He comes to fruition. What that also means is that we are not scared about how little we know. That's not the point. You see, the gospel that we tell to people who are unbelieving is the thing through which God works to grant new birth and open the eyes to salvation. It's not about you. It's Him working through His Word. Okay, so, on to tonight. That is, There are several impacts that are then born from uh, how we understand salvation. It's very important that we first understand how we come to be saved, but then we have to understand that that has an impact on what we do as a church um, we call this the doctrine of soteriology. I know I could have introduced this in week one, um, but I'm not. I'm going to save it to the end. Now that you are made it to the end, here's your $5 word, soteriology. All right? Soteriology is very simply the doctrine of salvation. What is your soteriology? In other words, how do you understand salvation, actually working, the inner workings of it? Um, Now, what a person or a church or a denomination believes about salvation has a direct relationship on the evangelism that they practice and the way that they practice it. So the way that they see someone coming to salvation, the way they understand salvation working, has a direct impact on the way the church actually functions and the way the worship service actually goes. And if you're ever a part of one worship service, and you see they do things different here, and you go to another worship service, and man, they don't do anything like that that church over there. And you wonder why. Most of it has to do with the doctrine of salvation that they believe. And it's drawing the connections that's the hard part for people. How does our soteriology connect to our, another $5, ecclesiology? How the church actually functions. How do those two connect? Our understanding of salvation and our understanding of how the church service works, how do those two connect? The church's mission is to make and mature disciples for the glory of God. And we see that in Ephesians 4 4 to 6 and 11 to 16. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That is, what, what is what's the church's direction? It, it, it's to God who is over all and through all and in all. But, what else? 4, 11-16, And he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the build, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather, in, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So you can see what its purpose is, where everything is directed toward God, but we are building each other up, joyfully building up the body of Christ, making and maturing disciples for the glory of God. Now, that being the case, most churches are going to agree to that but it's going to be radically different as to how that is accomplished. And so for the last probably about, there's been debate about how that works for a long time, but a very sharp distinction has been drawn in the church really over the last probably about 200 years and in terms of what the church actually practices in order to accomplish the making and maturing of disciples, right? Right? We all know that's our goal. That's what we're put here for, making and maturing disciples for the glory of God. Everything is directed toward God. We're making and maturing disciples for the glory of God. We all know that's our purpose. How do we accomplish that? Well, you ask two different churches, they're going to give two different answers. And what I'm saying is that is directly tied to what they believe about salvation. Okay. Um, in, uh, since the mid-1800s and the preaching of Charles Finney, Many churches have sought to bring about conversion through practices such as revivals, invitations, and the sinner's prayer, even though if asked to give an account in the Scriptures for these practices, they're notably absent. Um, So we've all heard these things before, right? Maybe we've even sat, I've sat under plenty of big tent revivals uh, out in the open air, or whatever you know, under the big the big white tent, and you have these sort of planned uh, events where it's sort of a bring the lost kind of thing, and and uh, you have a good long week long thing out in the sun, and uh, yeah, everybody's got to wear their suits and sweat through them, and you know you have the invitation that lasts for eight hours, so that eventually people come down, and and then when they come down front, you have them pray a sinner's prayer, uh, and so. What This was unheard of before the mid-1800s. Nobody's ever heard of this before. Um, but a man named Charles Finney uh, introduced this for reasons that we're going to get to in just a second uh, as part of his understanding of how someone comes to salvation and what we as a church should be doing in order to produce that kind of effect on people. Before that time... Um, The soteriology, the doctrine of salvation that held persuasion amongst many churches, if not all churches, said that human beings must be divinely regenerated and that human ability to respond at every stage of salvation comes from a sovereign act of God. Which, over the last 12 weeks, I've basically been arguing that. Every stage along the way, every moment that we would say, Salve-, this is where you, a person is saved, God is the one that has been acting to bring that about, right? And for before Charles Finney and, and many of his ilk, that understanding of how someone comes to be saved, even if... Someone thought it was a choice, even if someone thought that believed it, argued for free will, like Charles Wesley or, or others, they would still say that God was involved in this process along the way. And that all of this, doctor, this understanding of how a person comes to be saved is divinely regenerated. They're divinely regenerated, it's a divine work that happens. So if that's your understanding, that all of That someone comes to salvation by a divine work that God does in the heart of of people, if that's the case, then the evangelistic method that you're going to focus on in your church is going to be centered on preaching as a means of bringing sinners to conviction over their sinfulness, right? If you say, okay, God is the one that's going to do that, he's going to handle the bringing the sinners to to conversion and salvation and open their eyes to the gospel, then my job is to take the Bible, open it up, read it, teach it, apply it, and really hammer home over and over and over for the church in any and every way possible, Bible, 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 Bible. Right? That's got to be it. Not only that, but then it's prayer to God, who alone can affect the regeneration of a lost person. So that means that we as a church body are praying for people that we know are lost or praying that He will bring in lost people to hear the gospel. Um, It's urging those who had been awakened to settle the matter of salvation privately before God through confession of sin and subsequent repentance. You'll hear me say in the sermon week by week, Confess your sins to the Lord. Repent of them. Turn and trust Christ with your life and do it every single day. Continue to trust Christ daily. If there is a person out there who is not doing that beforehand and comes in and goes, yeah, I've got to do that. Christ is going to forgive me. Well, then I'm going to confess my sins to Him and I'm going to trust in Him. Do you know what we call that person? Saved. That's regeneration, right? That's regeneration, and it happens right in here. It doesn't happen on the front pew. It happens right here. So there's prayer, but then there's this an urging of people to settle this matter with God. Uh, And then, there's a private work that then begins between Christian and new convert. And that work is called discipleship, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Now, that's how it would work in a worship service. That's not to the exclusion of it working like, like Bob will walk in a park with, with somebody, all right? That's not to the exclusion of that. It works there too, but it's going to be him saying the gospel, this person going, oh my goodness, how come I've never heard this before? I believe that, and now the work of discipleship begins, right? It's a shame you didn't have a front pew to bring them down to. Um, didn't stop God from saving the person. So with Finney, as Finney comes along and starts arguing for his understanding of salvation, in his soteriology, along with many in today's churches, humans, he would say, are voluntarily depraved rather than, remember we said, condemned in Adam. Hey, you're, you're from conception. Finney would say, no, that's hogwash. You are voluntarily depraved. You make bad choices. And that's what you need to be free from. So then election to salvation results, and many of you have heard this before, from divine foreknowledge of one's response to the gospel. You heard this before? God's going to look down the corridors of the future, he's going to see what you choose, and that's what's going to make him elect you, right? It's God responding to man, okay? It's quite the reverse of what we would say. Rather than God's unconditional election. You didn't do anything. I chose you not because of anything you've ever done. Um, Jesus' death was not, he would say, penal substitution, meaning that he died for my sin, that he stood in the place for my sin, but rather, you've heard this before probably, it allowed God to to pardon sinners without violating his own nature and law. He's just, he's perfect, he's right. And so what Jesus, Finney would say, did was he purchased man's savability. So you now choose God, you say yes to God, and God takes all that, Jesus, that wealth that Jesus built up in his bank and applies it at that moment to your account. So he didn't secure anything 2,000 years ago. When he said, it is finished, he said... Well, really, it was a dot, dot, dot after that, kind of. His part was finished. But then you still have a choice to make for God to apply that to your account. Um, so it wasn't penal substitution the way I said. And new birth is simply the effect of successful techniques rather than God's monergistic work of regeneration. So it, it's it's the techniques that need to be modified so that you can hear what's being said to you. Sinner, don't you understand? You need it clearly articulated for you so that you can put things together. So the biggest obstacle to revival is a stubborn will that must be overcome. In which case, the elements of the service, of the church service, or the evangelistic presentation, or the walking in the park, whatever, must be arranged so as to break the obstinacy of the sinner. You get it? You've got to arrange the worship service in such a way so that whatever that sinner came in with, that baggage that they came in with, has to get out of the way. That's your job. you got to get that out of the way so that they can really hear and really make a decision. And if you do it in a a precise manner, it's nearly 100%. The the conversion rate is is incredibly high. And many of you, I can see the looks on your faces, you're going, what? But this is practiced in 95% of churches, Southern Baptist churches, today. The music has to have the padding of electronic sound underneath so that you can kind of keep the worship experience going. The, the, the screens in the back have to be playing the right setting. The lights need to be turned down low. The smoke needs to be just ever so slight. The band needs to be amazing. And then their, their, the vocals need to be unparalleled. The, the guitarist needs to just be lightly playing. And then the, the pastor, when he gives that invitation call, to come down, needs to labor the point for 30 minutes and pray, and we're going to sing 800 verses of Just As I Am uh, until you come. And uh, you getting it? You getting it? All of these things are, are techniques that are used to get all of the things out of your way so that you can be sucked into the experience of the worship movement. You can be brought to tears. So do you notice the same words can be spoken one way and then the exact same way but with music played behind them. And the feeling that is created in your chest with the very same words and the same tone, one has music behind it and the other doesn't. is entirely different. The feeling created in my chest because there's music behind it draws me in. It's a manipulative tactic. Finney was the first one, and he was really good at it. The best, you might say. He was the first one to bring that in. So it's successful techniques that gets... That, and if you think about it, if you understand the doctrine of salvation as, hey, you got to make the choice. It's all man-centered salvation. If you understand it that way, then why wouldn't you do any of those things? Why wouldn't you move heaven and earth just to make sure this person heard the presentation of the gospel. So then we introduce things into the worship service that are not found in Scripture anywhere. In fact, nowhere in Scripture do people even come to salvation that way. We introduce them in the worship service because it makes good practical sense. It's pragmatic. And before long, our entire church is built on pragmatics. In spite of Paul actually saying... In 2 Corinthians 4, 1-6, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not of ourselves, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, what has he done? He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How did someone come to salvation? How did we come to salvation? God shown in our hearts. I'm not going to practice the underhanded techniques and the manipulative tactics. I'm going to just give you an open statement of the truth. Going back to 1 Corinthians 1, he says, I'm just going to preach Christ and Him crucified. Some people are going to think it's a stumbling block. Some people are going to think it's foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. No tricks, no gimmicks. Straightforward, this is the Bible. This is what it says, and this is what we should do. So, stubborn will's got to get out of the way. Um, So, what preaching then becomes is a drama that's designed to engage. Public prayer becomes a coercive tool of applying pressure to sinners. You know, we're going to pray forever. I see that hand, God bless you. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I see that hand, I see that hand. There's a public pressure going on. And and the invitation is held as a token to the sinner of successfully gaining salvation. That's what Finney introduced the invitation, the altar call. He called it the anxious bench, but it's a very similar thing. That's what he introduced it for. Is you come down front, and when you pray the sinner's prayer, I can give you a token. Buddy, you have done it today. The problem is scripture nowhere says that. In fact, Paul says, I want to continue preaching. Lest, after preaching to others, I find myself disqualified. He didn't walk down front and get a token and say, I got that in my back pocket. I am saved now. And walk out the door and never darken the door of a church ever in the rest of my life. No, he said, I must persevere. I have to continue. All right. So, but it's a means of, of, of a token of gaining salvation. In reality, in reality, Churches do not have to choose between precise theology and personal evangelism. You need to understand that. Fix that in your brain. You do not have to choose between precise theology and, and per- personal evangelism. So in other words, Finney is, is over here saying, well, hey, if you really want to evangelize the lost, you've got to do it this way. And give up sound theology that's actually laid out in the Bible. You don't have to choose between those two. Actually, they fit together like a glove just because God designed it that way. That you can have precise theology and still be burdened for the lost. And what it involves, hopefully you've got that, precise theology, personal evangelism, what it involves is first preaching and teaching His Word. If God is the one who created everything out of nothing by speaking into the nothingness, then he is also the one that through his word and the preaching and teaching of his word will awaken people's souls to salvation. So it's first, if we're going to be evangelistic, we need to be dedicated to his word. He's the one that creates new hearts, not me. So I need to be faithful to the word that's in front of me. I need to read it, help you understand it, lay it out there for you, apply it to your life. You need to see how this word actually connects to me in the here and now. And if we do that, God is going to work through his word to do whatever he does. That's the, if you find a church veering from gospel faithfulness and employing all kinds of tricks and manipulations and things like this, you can define them as not evangelistic. They might be swelling, but they're not growing. Right? You got a swollen ankle or your foot is growing? You're going to need a new shoe either way, right? But one is good and the other is bad. Second, fervent prayer of the people for God to save lost people in their midst. Whether in their midst, around their midst, near their midst, close to their midst, far away from their midst. We should be fervent in prayer that God would save them. And ardent work of personal evangelism from every member, oh boy, here's where it really got real. You can't just hear the preaching and teaching. You can't just pray for the lost. You actually need to meet lost people. And you need to say, this is the gospel. You need it. And you need to believe it. You should believe it. Come with me to church. Hear it preached. Hear it taught. Let's go home. Let's go out to eat afterwards. I'm going to tell it to you again. I'll distill the sermon down for me because no doubt you didn't understand it so I'm going to try to unpack it for you more. Come with me to Wednesday. Come. I mean, so it's on and on, right? Personal evangelism. And a, compi- a commitment to personal holiness. This is also where the rubber meets the road. You believe this? You're telling other people they need to believe it? Well, did it make a difference in your life? There's got to be personal holiness. All right. So i lied. we're t- 10 minutes after what I said, but it's okay. We're okay. Actually, I, I'm going to go with the later time that I said, so it's five minutes after. We still have, we still have 20 minutes for questions, and I'm going to call it questions and response, all right? I'm not going to argue that these are answers. They're going to be responses. There's no doubt some questions that you've got. I ha- I, I'm, I've got an iPad here, so I may be Googling some, uh, Some <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> scripture references, if I if I need to remember, I'm good at going. I know this is the scripture, and I cannot remember where it is. But anyway, that's what Google's for. No uh, questions. Go ahead. Um, the question was, I'm going to remind me to repeat these for the recording. Um, what is my take on the age of accountability? Um, there is n- no definitive statement on the age of accountability in scripture. Let me say that first. However, it's a big however. There are some hints as to how God understands and relates to some people. Okay? Paul says in Romans 1:18 um, that although they knew God. This is not 18, this is a little bit after that. I can't remember exactly which verse, but it's right out there. Although they knew God, they neither acknowledged Him as God or gave Him thanks. Right? Paul bases the judgment of all people on the fact that they knew God and did not acknowledge Him. So, I think that there are some things, limited things, that we might be able to infer from that, and that is the people who are incapable of knowing God or giving him thanks or responding to him in that way um, are not held under that same kind of judgment. That I would say that's probably what is being inferred there, or what could be inferred there. Um, so that would, that would probably mean for someone like, uh, let's say an infant dies in the womb or, or maybe shortly after, or perhaps someone is um, stricken with some sort of a, You know, disease or condition or something like that that renders them, you know, mentally incapable of of hearing and processing, um, that 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 would probably be a different case in terms of judgment. Uh, I don't see them being able to acknowledge God or give him thanks in that sense. I will say this, though, let me just add this. When it comes to, you know, do babies go to heaven and and that kind of thing, I'll have to say this, and, and, and I, I don't, I don't want this to come across as harsh at all. Um, I've had people ask me this in like my office or something like that. And you have to understand the response that I have to give is, I don't know. I, I'm not there and that's not my decision to make as to who gets into heaven and who doesn't. Here's what I will say though. If we were standing next to God as he makes that judgment on that infant, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt, because of everything else I read in Scripture, we will be in total agreement. Understand? So we're not going to get up there and go, well, that's not fair. Promise. That's not going to happen. God is just. He's merciful. He's loving. I don't know how he handles those situations. I think the Bible gives us small clues here and there. David losing his child and saying, you know, th- there's that, several other things like that. But does that answer your question? But, okay. Okay. Or respond to your question? Others. Somebody else had one, Lynn LaFoy. So um, the question was, baptism is not necessary for salvation. We know that. Some churches don't practice baptism at least in the same way we do. They do confirmation maybe or they do something, you know, d- they do it different in other words. And when we practice the Lord's Supper, I, f- uh, what's called fencing the table, I fence the table around people who have been baptized as an infant, because we don't recognize that as baptism. And then I also will say, if you haven't been baptized at all, the Lord's Supper follows baptism, right? That's what I say. So the Lord's Supper is reserved for those who have been baptized before a church. Not infant baptism, but baptized following their of faith. Um, and why do we do that? If Baptism is not required. Now, this is a little, slightly different than salvation, but, um, so, b- when we talk about the invitation, that some people will say, uh, you don't confess me before men, I will not confess you before my Father, and they, it's the reason they have the invitation, they br- bring them down. But in the Bible, the profession of faith, when that is made public, so in, in the Bible, when you go public with your faith, that's called baptism. Baptism is the mechanism, the, the rite in the church, or, or you, you might even call it a ritual. I don't mean that in a, in a pagan sense, but um, that we go through, the practice that we go through in the church to announce that I am following Christ. It's a, it, there's several things that are accomplished in baptism. Remember, a person does not baptize himself or herself, Right? You can't just go stand up in the baptistry and go, right, and just, and stand up and say, you know, I'm baptized, guys, by the way. The church, I'm in the baptistry, and I'm baptizing this person, but I'm not the only one in that baptistry. You are all there with me, because what happens before I actually go into the baptistry and baptize? I bring their profession of faith before you, you vet them, and you say, Yes, we believe that person to be a Christian. So that process right here is not just a pledge between the Christian and God. It is that. It's pledging a clean conscience before the Lord. Confession of sin and all that. It's professing faith to Christ. But it's not just a person-to-Christ relationship. This is a person to all the people of the church, the pastor, and everybody I'm part of you, vet me, and tell me, do you think that's true? And we say, yes, and we are responsible for your discipleship. We pledge to you our ongoing devotion to help you grow in Christ. We, we do all those things, right? So a person taking uh, the Lord's Supper is essentially renewing that vow, reminding themselves of the same thing that they professed in the baptistry. They're saying, yes, I confess Christ. I need Christ. How can you be at this step if you haven't actually been at that step? Right? This is first. And the Bible is clear that is first. That you make the profession of faith and you join, you, you're you. in the baptistry. We then, as a church body who baptize you, are responsible for your ongoing discipleship and discipline. So we're responsible to say, you know, excommunication, to pursue and correct and train, and all those things that we're responsible for. And so when you take the Lord's Supper, you're saying, yes, I'm still here. I'm still with you. Now, how does a church discipline someone who they believe that confession that they made in the baptistry is false? They remove them from the table. You can't take the Lord's Supper if you're under church discipline. That's why when Paul says, you've taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That's why some of you are sick and many of you have died, right? And we look at that verse and go, what? <laughs> I didn't know that was on the table, <laughs> right? That's why church discipline exists is to say, wait a second, what's going on here? You have this pattern that you're not repentant of at all and then you're coming in here taking the Lord's Supper as if it's nothing? We're either confessing Christ or we're not, right? Does that make sense? How those, those things flow? So, yeah, James. Well, yeah, um, it, d- it depends on what church they go to, for sure. Uh, his, his statement was about people in political positions. They still get, you know, they still take the Lord's Supper or communion or whatever. And, and it, de- it depends on, on a church's biblical practice of church discipline. And that's all I can say. I can't answer for any other church. Um, but we certainly understand, and we've been through this recently, even in member meetings. Some of you are members who know this, and I, I'm not going to say too much, but... Um, it matters what you say and what you say you believe. So that, that does matter. It, 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 you know, just because it's stated on something like social media or something like that, or you, you make inflammatory statements that are unbecoming of a Christian. You should expect Christians in your church to say, that's not Christian. Take it down, right? So th- that there is a connection to what happens outside and what happens in here, right? Our doctrine actually applies to all of our life, everywhere, others. Yes, Sean. that's not yeah um, so the question was uh, let me see if I can summarize it God God is a relational God it seems like through covenants and things like that he is related to us and wants to have a relationship with us so then the question was how does the absence of free will accountability and things like that play into that yes when uh, he seems to it, free will seems to be necessary in order for us to be accountable to our sin. Is that? Well, to, be able to, have a to, be, to be out of a relationship. Yeah. Um, so to be able to have a relationship with God, there seems to need a freeness in the relationship. You need to be able to, you need to choose it, basically. Um, and so, okay, let's back up. If God gave us freedom of the will, we would not choose him. That is the problem. That's what sin has done. So the advent of sin has made it such that without faith, it is impossible to please God. As, a, as another example, I want to read Romans um, 8. So you can turn there if you want. This may be helpful for you. I don't hear pages, so I guess you trust me. Um, Romans 8 uh, 7 and 8. So, so listen to this. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Not just that it doesn't. It can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So this is the problem with the assumption that's being made in like a question like that, which is a normal question that a lot of people have, is, well, doesn't there need to be some freeness to the will in order for our choice to be an affectionate one, to be meaningful? And the reality, though, is on the ground is that is the case without the Spirit. The will is free but only to choose sin that's all it wants to do so we define throughout this series we defined the prison that we're in as one without any walls meaning that the people that are in the prison of the flesh want to be there it's a quite happy place for them to live What God does in salvation is actually open us up to freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's Galatians 5.1. So he's telling us, you're in bondage to sin, and you cannot please me, you cannot come to me, you don't want to come to me, you will not come to me. The Old Testament is proving that exact point to us. In the New Testament, when Christ comes in and His Spirit is given to people on the hearing of the Gospel, the blinders fall off, but the chains fall off too. And they run from the prison yard into the arms of Christ from a genuine desire to do so. That genuine desire to to love God is put there by His Spirit. Otherwise, you would never do that. So, it, it's a, it maybe maybe that's a, it's a problem in the way that we're thinking about what our life is really like before Christ. It's not like that at all. It's not like the way you described it. And we are really and truly accountable for all of our decisions, every careless word. We're really and truly accountable, and we will held that way in judgment. And here, here's the reality. God's sovereignty man's responsibility for his sin, meet in the mind of God. God does not explain to us how that works its way out. But you are really responsible for your decisions, even though God predestined them. We, we have to look no further than the cross of Christ to find that true. Peter preaches in Acts 2. Um, in fact, if you want to turn there, I think it would be good. Um... Acts 2, verse 23. Um, Actually, let's back up to 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Time out. Break that sentence down. Do you see what he just did? He says, Jesus is delivered up according to the hands of lawless men? No. According to the choices of lawless men? No, he doesn't say that. Not first. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So in other words, God put a plan in place and Jesus was delivered up in accordance with that plan. all right. But then he turns it on them. But you crucified him. And you're lawless for doing it. Because you crucified an innocent man. In the same sentence, Peter is saying, God destined this to take place. It all happened according to his plan. And at the same time, you're responsible for your sin. You didn't do it because you were trying to please God. I'm just doing what's according to his plan. You did it because you're wicked, and that's the reason you're guilty. Um, And then if you look in chapter 4, hang on, I've jotted this one down. Um, Acts 4, I'm getting there, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. Maybe I'm not. Acts 4, 27 and 28. Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So lest you think that God just said, well, I kind of want Jesus to be crucified one day, don't care how it happens and when, and kind of put it out there. That's not what Luke or the apostles then say at the end of that. All those people, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews, that's everybody, by the way, did exactly what your hand had predestined to take place. So, God planned that. Are they responsible? You bet they are. One more question, I'll give a response, and if there's still lingering questions, we'll open questions next week. Go ahead, Sean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I love this one. Good question. Uh, yeah. So this is great. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right, right. So, so Sean's question was about, it, it seems like, okay, God opens our heart, I get that, but why then does it seem like in places like Hebrews, it actually starts in 511, but goes all the way through 6 and, and 6.4 and, and others, um, that it looks as though Someone is losing their salvation. And many who are in the kind of Arminian persuasion or whatever will argue that you can lose your salvation. They argue for apostasy. Baptists have kind of held on to some Arminian stuff, but dropped that one. Uh, didn't want that one. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. Uh, and so, um, so they opted for other things. But, but what's actually being stated here in Hebrews 6 is something entirely different than what is initially thought on first read. I'll read it. constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God. Understand what he's saying here. <laughs> First, he's not saying falling fallen away, I think is a, a decent enough transi- translation, but the, the, the word there actually means to set aside. So it is impossible for someone who has set aside their faith. In other words, if you can imagine faith as a journey that you're on and you step off to the side of the road and sit down on your chair, he's saying it's impossible for someone who has stepped aside on the road to go back again to the very beginning and cross the start line again. No, 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 you've already begun the race. It's impossible to do that. He's not talking about a situation where someone actually forsakes the faith and leaves altogether. You have to understand what the Hebrews are doing right now. Is they have begun the discussion of faith. They have professed faith in Christ. And now, because of persecution, they're wanting to run back to the Judaic, Judaic religion where there is no persecution, right? Well, we can enjoy a life. Little did they know it was coming. But, um, but they were like, you know, we want to run to that because, well, we don't have to face the kind of things you have to face here. And what he's saying is, you should be more mature than you are by now. But you're not because you've taken, your, you've taken your cooler and all the things you were carrying down the road of salvation, and you've set it down on the side of the road, and you've sat down on it. But you have to understand that it's impossible for someone who's on the journey of salvation to then go back to the starting line and cross it again. It's already begun. You're, you're saved. There's no going back. There's, no, there's none of that. So, He's not arguing for someone that's fallen away. He's arguing for them who are believers, who he knows to be Christians, or he's convinced he's Christians, that you can't just set this aside. (coughs) That's not how it works, right? So he's actually arguing quite the opposite. Okay, if there are questions that you have, I will, here's what I'll do. I'll plan something for next week, but we're going back to where we left, okay? I'll plan that for next week. I'll start the week with questions We'll go however long that goes. Okay? Good deal. We'll do it that way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word and its truth and what it means. Um, We pray for the fruit of understanding how we are saved to be born in our lives. That what it results in is a people who love your word, who relish it being taught and sung and prayed, who are attracted to you because of who you reveal yourself to be in your Word. A God who is faithful to us, who loves us, who cares for us, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who is just and also merciful. Father, we know that's who you are, who you've revealed yourself to be in your Word, and we love that about you. I pray that our understanding of how we are saved by grace through faith, that it is not of our own doing, it is a gift that you have given to us, we pray that that understanding would shake us to our very core, that when we understand that this is your world and everything orbits around you instead of us, that it might change everything about the way we think about our even our own salvation, our very existence, what we are here for, what our purpose is. Whether we are students in school or retirees, that our entire existence would be shaped by the understanding that this is your world and you have invited us to live in it. And by your grace and abundant mercy, you have saved us, though we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You made us alive. We thank you for that. Though we'll never understand why, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.